Good morning. It's an honor to be with you all today. Um, just I preached here uh, last year, I think it was, and was so blessed to get to meet some of you. And uh, I just have to tell you, you you already know this. You are blessed to have Blake as your pastor. I've gotten to know him over the last couple of years. He's a dear brother in the Lord, and I so much appreciate his love for our God his uh, love for God's Word, and his love for God's people. And I know that you all see that here, and um, just uh, thank you, Lord, um, for that. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John 17, the Gospel of John, chapter 17. This is not our primary text today, but uh, it's going to be uh, 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 kind of a stepping stone to our primary text. Um, and also locate in your bulletin, there's a yellow sheet that's the sermon notes for uh, our, our passage today that I'll be alluding to. Several years ago in our church in Colorado, we went through this book by Kyle Eidelman titled Not a Fan. Perhaps some of you have read it. It's an in your Facebook that challenges us to think deeply about our relationship with Christ. For many people, it's not easy reading. Uh, Pastor Eidelman's contention is that there are millions of fans of Jesus in churches all over the world today who do not really know him personally. There's a big difference between being a fan of Christ and a true follower. The sermon I've chosen this morning is one out of one of the sermons out of that not a fan series that focuses on chapter three of his book titled knowledge about Christ or intimacy with him. Believe it or not, there's a huge difference between the two. Look at John 17, verse 3. Jesus is praying there to God the Father, and he prays this. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, when we think of eternal life, we often think of a quantity of life, living forever and ever and ever, which is true. But according to our Lord's words here in this prayer, it is also a quality of life. The quality of knowing God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son. And there's so much wrapped up in the meaning of that word knowledge. Having eternal life certainly involves knowing about God and Jesus intellectually. Saving faith is understanding and embracing the truths of the gospel with your brain. But it is so much more than that. The type of knowledge that results in eternal life must move from your brain to your heart. It is knowing God personally and intimately as your Abba Father and knowing Christ as your Lord, Savior, and greatest treasure. It's a knowledge that goes beyond the mind to touch your soul, your spirit, your affections, the will, desires, and behavior. The danger that chapter 3 of the Not a Fan book addresses is the danger of substituting knowledge about God for intimacy with him. This was a special danger for many of us who attend conservative evangelical churches because we face or, or we place such a premium on biblical knowledge. Instead of intimacy with Jesus, we've created a system focused on learning, not unlike the Pharisees in Jesus's day. For many of us, our default setting is biblical knowledge, not intimacy. Now, please don't misunderstand. I love doctrine and theology. Learning from God's Word and studying God's Word is invaluable. Jesus, in his 
time here on earth, read and referenced and quoted all kinds of passages from the Old Testament, ample proof that he had studied God's word with great care and diligence. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 in the New Testament tells us that one of the primary ways we are transformed into the image of Christ is renewing our minds with God's truth. And that is why Jesus says in John chapter 8, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So correct doctrine and theology and Bible study are very important. Many churchgoers today need to spend more time interacting with God's word, not less. But there's a danger here. Listen to the words of Kyle Eidelman from his book. The problem isn't knowledge. The problem is you can have knowledge without having intimacy. In fact, knowledge can be a false indicator of intimacy. Clearly, where there is intimacy, there should be growing knowledge, but too often there is knowledge without growing intimacy. Part of the proof that I have an intimate relationship with my wife is is how much I know about her. I know what kind of shampoo she uses. I know what kind of sushi she orders. I know what makes her laugh and what makes her cry. So knowledge is part of intimacy, but just because there is knowledge doesn't mean there is intimacy. You see, a healthy relationship with God involves the head, heart, and hands. Head, of course, refers to godly thoughts, to correct doctrine and theology, especially about the gospel and the primary truths of the gospel. Heart includes uh, what Jonathan Edwards described as godly affections. It involves our uh, desires and motives and attitudes and emotions. Hands refers to godly actions and our behavior. I'm curious, is your relationship with God this morning primarily head? Are you guilty of substituting knowledge about God for intimacy with him? And what does this intimacy look like anyway? I mean, it's hard enough for, for us to have an intimate relationship with another human whom we can see. How in the world do we have an intimate relationship with the God of the universe whom we cannot see and who's infinitely greater than we are? Today we're going to look at one of my favorite psalms which gives us a picture of what this intimacy with God looks like. If you haven't already, turn to Psalm 63 in your Bibles. The 63rd Psalm, and if you notice, the heading of Psalm 63 says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness or the desert of Judah. In verse 9, he speaks of those who seek to destroy my life. So David is probably a fugitive of some kind. Um, Someone is chasing him in the wilderness. We are inclined to think of the days when King Saul chased David in the wilderness and tried to kill him. But verse 11 here points to a later time. It pictures David as king already. When Saul was chasing David, he wasn't king yet. But there was a time when David was king and a fugitive from his own land, namely the time when his son Absalom rebelled and tried to overthrow his father's throne. Do you remember that tragic episode in Israel's history? According to 2 Samuel 15, 23, David fled the city, crossed the brook Kidron, and went into the wilderness. This is probably the experience behind Psalm 63 here. It was one of the lowest points in David's life. Not only was his son trying to kill him, but Absalom also fulfilled this prophecy of judgment upon David from Nathan the prophet. And I quote from 2 Samuel 12, 11 and 12. 
This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel, unquote. David paid a high price for his sin with Bathsheba, did he not? And sure enough, we read in 2 Samuel 16 that Absalom pitched his tent on the top of David's palace and slept with several of David's wives and concubines in that tent. It was public knowledge for all of Israel in broad daylight, as the prophet had predicted. Can you imagine the shame and disgrace of one of your children trying to kill you and then him having relations with your wife and the entire nation hears about it? It doesn't get any worse than that, does it? It was one of the lowest points in David's life, and yet we still see an amazing intimacy with God here. If you notice, he begins the psalm, O God, you are my God. These words are important for several reasons. First, they make plain the tremendously important fact that the seeking and thirsting for God, which we're going to see in just a moment, is not the seeking of a man who is unacquainted with God. It is not the seeking of a man who has no relationship with God. On the contrary, the phrase, oh God, you are my God, is the deepest affirmation that between David and God, there was a covenant relationship based on God's oath. You see, God had said to uh, Abraham in Genesis 17, 7, these words, this promise, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And so as both a physical and spiritual descendant of Abraham, David enjoyed a loving covenant relationship with God by faith. And so it is with all of us who know Christ by faith. The New Testament is explicitly clear that all true Christians are spiritual descendants of Abraham. I'm curious, are you like David this morning? When you are driven into the wilderness by the tragic and painful circumstances of life, and you begin to suck for air in the quicksand of your own emotions, can you cry out among the jackals and the snakes, Oh God, you are my God. Have you entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ through repentant faith? You see, the death and resurrection of Jesus for our sins is the only way that makes this intimacy with God possible. Do you know in your heart that all of your sins have been atoned for and forgiven? The reason I dwell so long on this first phrase is that the rest of the psalm is built on this foundation. Without this rock beneath, there is no true worship or intimacy with God. But once this foundation is established, oh God, you are my God. Then what appears in the rest of the psalm is that God can be savored in at least two ways. And therefore, worship takes on at least two forms. Verses 1 through 4 describe the savoring of God through fainting and thirsting. Verses 5 through 8 describe the savoring of God through feasting. And I want you to see this clearly today because it is so important in understanding the movements of your own redeemed souls. God is worshipped, honored, and savored both by fainting for Him in the desert and feasting on Him at the banquet. Will you please remember that because it gives us glimpses of what this intimacy looks like. Look at verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. 
Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Here David longs for intimacy with God like a man in the desert is dying of thirst and longs for water. And please understand, David is not hungering for God's blessings. He's not hungering to be taken out of the wilderness so to be relieved from his pain as much as he is hungering for God himself. Look at verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Here David remembers the times when he was in the sanctuary meeting with God's people, worshiping the Lord like we're doing here at church today. And during those times of worship, he remembers seeing God's power and glory. God is worshipped, honored, and savored both when we faint for him and when we feast on him. Fainting is the form of worship when God is distant. It involves longing and panting and and thirsting and, and, and yearning. Feasting is the form of worship when God is near and we see him clearly. This is a great help when we wake up in the wilderness one day. It could be that some of you here this morning are in the wilderness as I speak. Your pain is great and at times God seems so far away. There are several lessons we learn here in this magnificent psalm. One lesson is that even though worship does involve expressions of thankfulness to God for his gifts, that is not the essence of true worship. This is going to come as a shock to some of you. There is a gratitude to God for his gifts that has no worship in it at all. In other words, there are people who love their health and family and jobs and hobbies and they thank God for those things often, but they don't love God. They don't savor God. They're like the woman who marries the rich man because of his money and the things his money can buy, but she doesn't love him. And when God is not savored for the sweetness and excellence of who he is, When we love his gifts more than we love the giver, he is not worshipped. That is not intimacy. He is just our big sugar daddy in the sky. So just because you're thankful to God for all of his blessings doesn't mean you enjoy intimacy with him. Get this. There are millions of non-Christians who thank God often for all of his blessings, but they don't know him. David makes this plain in the way he expresses his longings in verses 1 and 3. In verse 1 he says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Other versions say, my body longs for you. My whole being longs for you. Please notice what I said earlier. This is not primarily a thirst for any of God's gifts. It is a thirst for God. David has a heart for God. He has a taste for fellowship with God. Nothing will satisfy him on this planet but God. And he makes that even more explicit in verse 3. Look at it. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. This means that David wanted God and treasured God's love more than he wanted life. And if he wanted, wants God more than you want life, then you want God more than you want all of the joys of life, including family, friendships, children, food, sexual relations, job satisfaction, 
productivity, books, skateboards, church meetings, sermons, computers, music, homes, video games, pets, iPhones, waterfalls, sunsets. You treasure God more than you treasure all of those things, as wonderful as some of those things are. Now, when David says that the love of God is better than life and therefore better than all of the blessings of life, he is not denying that all of these good things come from the love of God. And neither is he suggesting that it is wrong for us to enjoy these blessings from God. He is warning us, rather, that if our hearts settle on the beauty of the gifts, and we can even be thankful for those gifts, but we do not yearn for the infinitely greater beauty of the giver. We are idolaters and not true worshipers of God. And every single one of us here today have been guilty of that idolatry, even as Christians. It's a battle we fight all the time of loving God's gifts more than we love the giver. Am I right? I wonder if this is why we cannot do without the wilderness experiences of life. One of the questions I hear most often is why? Why the pain and suffering? Why, God, is this happening to me? Well, think about it. If all of life here on earth were a paradise, as so many people think it should be, and as so many of us try to make it, then would we not much more often become addicted to savoring the gifts of God rather than God himself? Surely this is why Jesus said it is so hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And surely this is why he takes his loved ones again and again through the desert fires and the wilderness. One reason for the pain of the desert is to disenchant us with this world and give us a taste for eternity and to cause us to long for the return of Jesus. I mean, think about it. If you had the perfect life, if you had a perfect marriage and perfect kids and perfect job and perfect church, you wouldn't want Jesus to return, right? The wilderness helps us to savor God more than we savor his gifts. It helps to wean us from loving the things of this world too much. So that intimacy with God becomes more precious to us than intimacy with our spouses or children or grandchildren. His love is better than everything else in life, including life itself. Do you treasure God that much? Is Jesus your first love this morning? One, one line in the song we sang earlier, he's our greatest treasure. Is Jesus your greatest treasure? Can you relate to this level of intimacy? For me, sad to say, it depends on the day. There are days when I love God's gifts more than I love the giver. Another thing we see in this psalm is the importance of the corporate worship in the life of the soul. I've already alluded to it. Look at verse 2 again. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. What does this mean? It means that when David was out in the wilderness cut off from the worshiping community at the temple, it was the memory of the experiences in the temple that brought God home to him with clarity and power and finally gave him a feast in the wilderness. Neither in the Old Testament nor the New was the worship of God bound to a building. But in both Testaments, God blessed the regular gathering of his people. 
A regular gathering that had a vision of God's power and glory. This is the vision that feeds our souls on Sunday mornings. And then later on comforts and empowers us in the wilderness. Worship at church on Sunday should prepare us for challenges the rest of the week. Now I know I speak for Pastor Blake when I say that he... And the leaders of this church want you all to get a glimpse of God's power and glory and love here in, in your Sunday meetings. That's what David saw when he was in the temple and it carried him through the wilderness. Verse 4. So I will bless you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hand. So we're going to see in a moment David is expecting God to deliver him from his enemies and from the wilderness. But even if he doesn't deliver me in this life, David says, I will continue to praise and glorify you with my lips as long as I live, O God. Here's another mark of people who have an intimate relationship with God. Their praise is not conditioned upon their deliverance from pain in this life. Their worship is not dependent on God's blessings. Like Job, they are able to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a God thing to be sure. You don't do that in your own strength, right? Whether feast or famine, whether in the wilderness or in the palace, my lips will praise you. Unconditional praise. Can you relate? Again, it depends on the day. Verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Now, those of us who love food can relate to the imagery here. Think for a moment about one of the most delicious meals you have ever eaten. Maybe it was a Thanksgiving feast. Maybe a special meal at your favorite restaurant. The food was cooked to perfection, and it was so delicious. And when you finished the meal, you were probably stuffed and feeling so satisfied, you wanted nothing else for a while except maybe to take a nap. Can any of you relate to that level of food satisfaction? Yeah. What David is saying in verse 5 here is that just as your favorite meal delights your taste buds and satisfies your body, so God is the food that delights and satisfies my soul. Nothing satisfies me like he does, and thus it causes me to praise him with my lips. Verse 6. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate you in the watches of the night. I'm curious, what do you think about when you wake up in the middle of the night? Something at work, um, family problems, financial stress, physical pain, school challenges, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, food, your favorite sports team. There are lots of things that can occupy our thoughts, right? When you love someone deeply, you think about them often. The psalmist here is so in love with God, that is who he thinks of first in the middle of the night. At 2 a.m. or 3 a.m., he meditates on the goodness and greatness of God, or perhaps on a passage of Scripture. He worships God as he's lying there in bed. That's another sign of intimacy. God is often your first thought and desire, and you think of him often. You commune with him throughout the day and even in the middle of the night when you can't sleep. Verse 7, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. 
The word picture here is that of a mother bird who hides her little chicks under her wing to protect them from a ferocious storm or a wild animal. In the same way God protects his children, he he hides us in the shadow of his wings, as it were. Every day he protects us in a thousand different ways, does he not? And even when the storm is raging all around us, we can sing because we know that God is with us. And he will never leave us and he will not let anything happen to us that is not part of his all-wise, all-loving plan. Now, this singing in the desert doesn't always come immediately. Have you noticed? Sometimes it takes weeks or months or even years. Sometimes the singing does occur in the middle of the trial, but sometimes it comes after the trial is over. But the joy and singing does come. Eventually, our gracious God turns our sorrows into joy. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Verse 8. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Again, we see this intimacy as David's soul clings to God by faith. There's nowhere else to go when you're in the wilderness. He also acknowledges that God upholds him as he is walking in the, in the wilderness. And this renewed vision of the glory and power and love of God gives David hope for the future. And let's end by the last, reading the last three verses. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. David knew that one day in the future his awesome God would deliver him from his enemies and bring him out of the wilderness. He knew that a holy God would make sure that justice was done and his evil enemies got what they deserved. He didn't know for sure when it was going to happen, but he knew it was going to happen. And it gave him hope. And sure enough, it did happen. Absalom and his men were killed and David was restored to his throne. I'm curious, do you look forward to the future with hope? It's sort of hard when you listen to the news these days, right? Do you eagerly anticipate the return of Christ when he will destroy once and for all our greatest enemies, sin and Satan? They are already defeated foes, but one day he will destroy them completely and we will be delivered from this sinful curse on this planet and in our lives. We will be delivered from all of the wilderness experiences in this life to a new heaven and a new earth and a new life. No more sorrow or tears or sin or suffering or disease or death. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I close with several lessons from Psalm 63 about how to judge your intimacy with God. I included these on your sermon notes. See if you can relate to David in this psalm. Number one, you value God more than you value his gifts. Two, you long for God more than you long for deliverance from pain. Three, you value corporate worship because it gives you a glimpse of God that helps prepare you for the wilderness experiences during the week. You love coming to church. Four, you verbally praise and thank God often, even in the wilderness. Five, you cherish God's power, love, and glory. It's better than life. His love is better than life. 
Six, you love God more than anyone or anything else and you commune with him often. Seven, because of God's presence and protection, you're able to experience peace in the midst of the storm. Sometimes you even sing in the shadow of his wings. Storms raging all around. Eight, you have hope because you know that God will deliver you from your pain one day and bring about justice on the wicked. And then sort of a summary statement. It's not original with me. Uh, I'm sure some of you have probably heard it before. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Think about how much glory it brings God when you're telling all of the people in your life that no one or nothing on this planet satisfies me or brings me as much joy as he does. He is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Singer Natalie Grant has a song that came out a couple of years ago titled More Than Anything. I'm sure some of you have probably heard it. The chorus goes like this. Help me want the healer more than the healing. Help me want the savior more than the saving. Help me want the giver more than the giving. Help me to want you, Jesus, more than anything. Can you relate to that level of intimacy? Can you sing those words and really mean it? All of us are at different places in our spiritual journeys, and all of us have room to grow, right? Some days or weeks we're closer to God than others. Sometimes it's fainting for God in the desert. Other times it's feasting on God in the palace. But if you can't relate to any or most of these signs of intimacy with God on this sheet, you're probably just a fan of Jesus and not a true follower. Head, heart, and hands. I'm curious, how would you rank those three in your own relationship with God? For me, I'm head first. I I love doctrine and theology and Bible study. I love intellectual stimulation. A close second for me is heart and the whole realm of my affections, feelings, attitudes, desires, and motives. A distant third for me is serving God with my hands and godly actions. Your order of head, heart, and hands might be different than mine. But an intimate relationship with God must include all three. And as I said at the beginning of the sermon, there's a danger for us head people to substitute knowledge about God for intimacy with him. There's a popular old hymn that many of you, at least probably those of you my age, uh, are familiar with. It's titled, In the Garden, and it describes an, an intimacy with God. The chorus goes like this, speaking of God, and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. True confession. As a head guy, I used to think that was a silly song. I thought it was way too sentimental and not theologically accurate. Walking with Jesus and talking with him and listening to him and experiencing joy together in the garden seemed to humanize God way too much in my mind. But now I can relate to such intimacy. I've been through 
enough wilderness experiences to drive me to him. And so if I'm sure some of you, maybe many of you, he walks with me in the sense that he is omnipresent. I know he is with me wherever I go, and I sense his presence most of the time. He talks with me, not that I've ever heard an audible voice from God. He talks to me primarily through his, the Bible. But he also speaks to me in that still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. He speaks to me through other people and circumstances and pain and suffering. And his magnificent creation speaks volumes about him, does it not? And he tells me I am his own. Romans eight sixteen. The Holy Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm one of his children. I know in my heart that all of my sins are forgiven and atoned for by the blood of Jesus. And God is my Abba, Papa, Daddy. And I am his precious child. And as a result, we share much joy together. And I'm sure many of you can relate to that intimacy and joy as well. But lest you think I'm some super saint, please know that I have a long ways to grow in my relationship with God. Like all of you, I am a work in progress. I struggle with sin every single day, and that intimacy that I just described ebbs and flows. I struggle with idolatry, turning away from God to find my greatest joy and satisfaction elsewhere. And as I said earlier, I sometimes love God's gifts more than I love the giver. But by God's grace, I see progress in my journey. I am closer to our Lord today than I was 5 or 10 or 20 years ago. And I trust all of you can say the same if you've been a Christian for any length of time. You see progress in the journey. So I come back to my sermon title today, Knowledge About Christ or Intimacy with Him. There's a world of difference between the two. Fans know about Jesus. There's millions and millions of fans. True followers know him intimately. Oh, Lord, please help our relationship with you to not stop at the head. Please help it to engage our heart and affections as well as our, our, our hands and godly actions. Please help us to obey the single greatest commandment in the entire Bible, to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. Please increase our intimacy with you. Amen? One of the things I love about that Natalie Grant song I mentioned earlier is that it's a prayer. You see, we even need God's help and grace, sanctifying grace, to draw closer to Him. You can't flip a switch and turn on this intimacy I'm talking about. If left to myself, my heart is prone to wander from the God I love. In my own strength, I will turn away from you, Lord, and try to find my greatest joy and satisfaction elsewhere. And so we pray the words of that song. Oh, Lord, please help us as a church to want the healer more than the healing. Help us as a church to want the Savior more than the saving. Help us to want the giving more than, or the giver more than the giving. Help us to want you, Jesus, more than anything. For you see, like David is telling us in Psalm 63, 
God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Please take us there as a church. Amen? Do you want to go there as a church? Take us there. Lord, take us there as your people and as a church. And I can't think of a better lead into the communion feast as we are partaking of the body and the blood of Jesus. Talk about intimacy and remembering all that he has done for us. Lord, uh, we, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for your word. We thank you that through Christ, we can, that the barriers have been broken down. We were alienated from you. We were your enemies. We were spiritually dead. And in love and mercy, you reached down and made us alive in Christ and drew us to yourself. And you tore down the barriers. And then you adopted us in your fa- into your family as your precious children. And you're our Abba Papa. And now we enjoy intimacy with you. Lord, we're sorry for our idolatry. You've blessed us with so many gifts. You want us to enjoy those gifts. But sometimes, Lord, we enjoy them too much. And we love them more than we love you. Forgive us of that, Lord. And as we enjoy your gifts, I pray that you would be the source of our greatest joy. And our greatest pleasure. And our greatest satisfaction. Take us there, Lord. Take us there, even now, as we celebrate the Lord's table. In Jesus' name, amen.